uh, that I miss Mary Lucy. She's been with me and, and talking to me and praying for me and lifting me up. And what a daughter do I have. Now, I want you to hear her because she's also a very good preacher. In that day, in that culture, it doesn't work for us to view it through the lens of our current culture. So let's start by zooming out a little bit. Genesis opens, as we all know, with the story of God's creation and how he um, creates everything that inhabits the earth, including um, Adam and Eve. And then we see in Genesis 3, um, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that sin enters the world, right? And that's what separates us from the Father. And then from that point forward, everything, and I mean everything, is about reconciling us back to God the Father, which ultimately comes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, God begins that quest to reconcile us to God through the election of Abraham, and that's what we talked about last week. But he also uses the nation of Israel, and that's the story of Genesis. His intention is to show us his power and his might through the election of the nation of Israel. And he does that as he leads Abraham, and then as my kids read, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, these patriarchs of Israel. Now, the story of Tamar and Judah is found in Genesis 38, and it's really kind of nestled as an interlude between the continued story of the patriarchs, specifically the story of Joseph. So let's zoom back in a little bit now so we can get some immediate context. And when we do that, we've got to look at the, the book the chapter right before Genesis 38, Genesis 37. And in that chapter, most of you know the story, right? It's the story of Joseph. He's the special son, the most loved of the 12 brothers by Jacob. And most of you remember the story that Joseph doesn't really make his life easier by telling his brothers this dream that he has, that they're all going to bow down to him. And all of this hostility comes to a head when they see Joseph out and they decide to capture him and throw him into a cistern and leave him for dead. And that's where we meet Judah, one of our main characters that we're going to discuss today. See, Judah chimes in with this idea. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And then a group of Mishnahites just happen to be passing by, and they do. And then they smear goat's blood all over Joseph's distinct, colorful coat, and they show it to their father, and they tell Jacob that Joseph must have been devoured by a wild animal. Now now that we've zoomed out a little bit and we have seen the immediate context of this story nestled in Joseph's story, let's dig into Genesis 38, this interlude. It's a pretty lengthy chapter, so I'm going to give you kind of the cliff note versions. As we go through, what I'd like to do is add in that cultural context that's so relevant. And then ultimately, we're going to hit verse 26, and that's where we're really going to camp out today. So Genesis 38, it opens with Judah willingly leaving his brothers to head to Adullam, this land of Canaanites. And he's going to hang out with this guy, his buddy, Hira. And there he meets a woman, a Canaanite woman, and he marries his daughter. They have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, Judah gets a wife for his firstborn heir, and her name is Tamar. So now we've got both the characters that we're going to examine today. And then in verse 7, we see, but Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, we don't know the nature of wicked in Er and whether it was directed at Tamar, but we do know that it was significant. 
So here is some of that cultural context that I mentioned. See, there was a clear custom in this time that God actually later adopts as law for the Jewish nation. That happens in Deuteronomy 25, but it's called a Leverite marriage. And what it was was basically to preserve the family line and to protect childless widows. See, remember in that day, widows were – it was really difficult to be a widow. They had no social, economic, or cultural standing at all. The custom – that later gets adopted as law, really required the brother of the dead husband to marry the widow and to ensure that that widow would have a son who could later care for her um, and who would inherit the husband's inheritance. Now, this practice later, as I mentioned, becomes law um, because it was so important to the social structure at that time, especially think about after Israel enters the promised land, and they have to have some protections to make sure that property passes through their inheritance in the promised land. So according to this custom, Judah requires his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar, and Onan agrees. But he really only does so to avoid being publicly ridiculed. See, had he refused to marry Tamar, the custom of that day would have allowed Tamar, as a woman, a lowly woman in this society, to take him to the city gate and take off one of his sandals and spit in his face. A, a horrific um, form of humiliation to this man. So rather than face that, he says, okay, I'll marry her. But he's deceitful in keeping her from becoming pregnant. He may have been driven by greed. We don't know exactly, but we do know that he stood to inherit a greater share of the father's estate if Tamar did not bear a son. So his deceit is so great in the eyes of the Lord that God also puts him to death. Now, there's only one son left for Tamar, and that's Shelah. Now, Judah assumes that Tamar is the problem, that she is the cursed one. It never probably even occurs to him that his sons did anything wrong. And so he hides behind this excuse that Shayla's too young to marry, and he sends Tamar back to her father's house. Now, Tamar would have been completely humiliated in society. She was sent back to her father. She had two men later, no child, and no ability to move forward in life. Instead, she basically had to sit and wait in a holding pattern. Now, much time passes, and I imagine Tamar's desperation increases. And still, Judah does not follow through. He does not allow her to marry Shayla. And then Judah's wife dies, and he mourns her, and then he travels. He goes to hang out with this buddy, Hira, that got him in trouble the first time, right? But he goes to hang out with Hira. And Tamar gets word of his travels. Now, at this point, she knows that Judah never intends to give her in marriage to Shelah. So she meets him along the road. He is traveling. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She puts on a veil, and Judah approaches her. They agree to payment for her services in the form of a young goat, which obviously he didn't have on him. And so as a pledge of the coming payment, he gives her his seal, his cord, and his staff. Now, a seal in that day was a, a, was a form of identification, kind of like a driver's license in today's age. So usually it was a unique design carved in stone, and it was worn on a ring or maybe um, a necklace, and it was never separated from its owner. It was unique, and it was identifying. So they sleep together, and Tamar becomes pregnant. Now, again, she's disguised, so Judah doesn't know that he just slept with his 
daughter-in-law. He later attempts to pay her the young goat that he has promised and retrieve his personal belongings, but his servant is unable to locate this prostitute, and he doesn't try very hard. So three months pass, and Judah is told that his daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution, and now she's pregnant. So it doesn't tell us that Judah, Judah thought, oh, well, I was just with the prostitute. No, instead he condemns her, and he calls for her to be burned to death. So Tamar, in response, is she is being led out probably um, to her death. She sends him a message that she is pregnant by the man who owns these things, and she sends him his cord, his seal, and his staff. So let's stop there. It's a pretty difficult subject. What we see is manipulation, we see deception, we see selfishness, right? We see prostitution, and we see a lot of double standards. But there's also a little bit more cultural context to discuss. As I mentioned in this Leverite marriage, um, it was custom at this point, but some historians have recorded that in the absence of a brother to provide an heir, the search would be extended. It was widened to other members of the family, perhaps even to the father-in-law, Judah, in this case. This seems to be collaborated for us in the book of Ruth, because if you'll remember, there was no brother-in-law for Ruth. And so the search is expanded to Boaz and this other living relative that is unnamed. See, while it was still deceptive on Tamar's part, it may very well have been culturally acceptable in that day for the heir to come from the union of the widow and the father-in-law, from Tamar and Judah. Now, cultural relevance aside, I'd like us to focus on this next verse today. It's verse 26, and it says this, Judah recognized them, the seal, the cord, and the staff, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Selah, and he did not sleep with her again. Now, we know from this chapter that, that Tamar goes on to give birth to twins, Perez and Zerah, and from this lineage, we eventually get Jesus the Messiah. So the first thing I want to say about this story, and really any story of the Bible, is that there are a million different interpretations under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And with a story like this, it's really easy, and I know because I did it, to become so disenfranchised with how wrong everything is that we can't really place it in our moral set. So we determine we can't really learn from it. And in many ways, um, it, this is even harder in this series because we know ultimately that these people are ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we put this light on Tamar and Judah, but the light belongs on God. See, if we're honest, we do this in our lives too, right? We tend to make life all about us. It's all about our circumstances, our situations, the people that annoy us, the people that give us a hard time, generally anything that's not going well in our lives. We might acknowledge God, but the light's still on, our, on us, on our situation. It's not on him. And here's what the problem with that. See, God is absolutely for you. He is absolutely for us, but he's really not all about us. He's about his glory. See, we may have been chosen as the instruments to bring about his glory, but make no mistake, it's always about his glory. Now, here's the one-sentence summary of, of everything that I want to share today. 
What we see in the lives of Tamar and Judah is that God can redeem the oppressed, and he can also redeem the oppressor. So if we head back to Genesis 38 and this verse 26, when Judah says, she is more righteous than I, I see, I think that verse is important because I think it marks a turning point for Tamar and also for Judah. So let's begin with Tamar. Much of her story is one of desperation because of the limitations she experienced as a woman living in her day. And yet Tamar has this resolve, this courageous and bold pursuit of justice. She risks everything by disguising herself as a prostitute. And the thing is, she didn't even know that she would become pregnant. And this resolve to change her circumstance results in this public declaration of her righteousness by the very man who lied and manipulated and schemed to place her in her difficult position. See, we don't know who was present when Judah says this, but in that day, even if Tamar was not present, the statement was incredibly meaningful. See, it would have been meaningful, perhaps even vindicating today, but I think in the context of that day where Judah was a man of influence and Tamar had no standing, it carried more weight. See, it was in that moment that I believe some of her desperation it began to look a little bit more like promise. See, her life was spared. Her unborn twins secure her future. And maybe, just maybe, a shred of her dignity was restored. Now, I believe those words spoken by Judah, she is more righteous than I, likely began a process of healing in Tamar's life. See, I believe they might have even been prophetic words spoken over her life, even though they came from a sinful and oppressive man. The story of Tamar, it reminds me of the redemptive and compassionate heart of God to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the victim. See, God knew that she felt overlooked and unimportant, and believe me, he knows if you feel that way today. See, there are so many scriptures in the Bible about the care of widows. There's so many exhortations for us to care for widows in the Bible. Psalm 68.5 tells us to defend the rights of the widow. James 1.27 says this religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And 1 Timothy 5.3 says to give proper recognition to widows in need. See, I believe there is a parallel here between the heart of God for the widow in biblical times and his heart for the oppressed and the marginalized and the victimized in our communities today. See, I believe he is compassionate towards and he is a defender of those who feel unseen and silenced in despair. And we see that so specifically when Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And then he goes on to say, he has sent me to release the oppressed. Now, this is really good news because not only does Jesus see, but he also wants to redeem. And I think we see that in the many examples of miracles in the Bible related to widows. So you remember that foreign widow who gives by faith 
Elijah her last handful of flour in a jar and her last drop of oil, and God through Elijah multiplies it until the drought in the land passes. Remember that same widow, her son dies, and God through Elijah resurrects him. And remember that widow that Elisha encounters who's in debt and she's about to lose her two sons to slavery and she has nothing more than a little oil to pay off her creditors. And Elisha orders her to go get empty jars from her neighbors and not just a few. And she does. And then miraculously, as she closes the door to her room, she begins to pour that little bit of oil and it keeps pouring until all of those jars were filled. See, it was enough to pay off her creditors, but there was even some left for her son and her to live off of. And remember in Luke, Luke 7, when Jesus enters that town and he's passing by and he sees what was probably like a funeral procession. And it was a funeral of a woman a a widow's only son. And remember what Jesus says to her when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. But the miracle is that he resurrects that boy from the dead. And then it says Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, Tamar's righteousness, it may not have been in her methods, but her righteousness was in her desire, her calling to preserve the lineage of the Messiah to come. Now, I would love to say that Tamar saw full justice and complete healing from this trauma in her lifetime, that she was completely restored. But simply put, the Bible doesn't really tell us that. But I do believe that we see slivers of miracles in her story. See, the first is Tamar, that Tamar is the only woman that I could find, and I really searched, that is given this description of righteous in the entire Old Testament. See, God loved her. He created her. He had purpose for her life. And Tamar didn't know the full significance of her life here on earth, and we don't know ours either. It's only because of God's faithfulness that we can know and cling to this assurance that there is purpose, that nothing is wasted in God's economy. See, God chose to elevate her. He didn't just give her one son. He gave her two, a double blessing. Now, practically, this kept her from becoming a childless widow, where her life may have ended up as a beggar or possibly worse. But God also redeemed Tamar in ways that she may not have seen. See, hundreds of years later at a temple gate, that place of importance that we've talked about, after Boaz redeems Ruth, we see the elders at that temple gate. They pray over the union and they bless Ruth with offspring like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. See, Perez, her son, was a man of honor. And finally, God redeems her in ways that she would definitely never see by choosing her from, for all of humanity to see as a direct ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. See, those are the slivers of miracles, of redemptive miracles in Tamar's life. Now, according to Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So we too, we that are in Christ, we are also in that family. And even more than that, like Tamar, we get to experience a double blessing. So In those moments when we feel marginalized, when we feel unseen, when we feel like we're in despair, I believe God desires to whisper to us 
that we too are doubly blessed because we are doubly owned by him. And this is what I mean when I say that. See, the powerful, majestic, sovereign, loving, compassionate God of the universe, he created us. And even though we already belong to him, he also purchased us. He redeemed us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. See, friends, we are doubly owned by him. And that double blessing continues because we don't only get to live and experience life here on earth as a son or daughter of the risen king, but we also get this double promise of eternity in heaven with him. Now, one of the most beautiful things that I see in this story is that redemption doesn't stop with Tamar. It also extends to Judah. Now, see, Judah's statement, she is more righteous than I, it's one of remorse, it's one of conviction, and possibly even one of repentance. See, the first thing I notice is that Judah has this awareness, right, a realization that he's wronged Tamar. He publicly confesses it, and I believe he's acknowledging his sin. He's owning his part, not just in sleeping with a prostitute, but in keeping his third son, Selah, from Tamar. Now, Romans 2.4 says this, God's kindness leads you to repentance. See, that's, that verse, what that means is that the kind conviction of the Spirit gently tells us that we are not on the right path. It whispers to us, this is not the right way. Now, many of us felt that when we surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, a lot of us call it this tugging on our hearts. And many of us, we feel it regularly, right? When we pray like David prayed in Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Search, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, I think most of us can admit that sometimes we don't respond to the kind whispers of the Spirit. Maybe we think we know better. I know that's me sometimes. Or honestly, maybe we're just not ready to surrender. And guys, I think we all know that sometimes the conviction of the Spirit, it calls us to do things we're not comfortable with. Things that look a lot like dying to self and taking up our cross. But even so, God is never changing, right? And his kindness doesn't end. He still pursues us to draw us back to him and away from our sin. And sometimes that kindness, it looks a lot like letting us fall so that in our brokenness, we can realize that we can't do it without him. Now, perhaps in this moment, God spoke gently to Judah when he's presented with this seal, his cord and his rod. Or perhaps the kindness of God could be found in letting Judah be publicly shamed by allowing that proverbial rug to be pulled out from under him. Either way, this was a moment of conviction by our gracious God. And as Isaiah 59, 1 says, the arm of the Lord is never too short to save. Now, there is no way to be certain of Judah's heart and whether his repentance was genuine. But what we do know with certainty is that Judah was changed. See, the next time we see him, a few chapters later in Genesis 44, a whole lot has transpired. And we don't have much time to go into it, but... Since Joseph was sold into slavery, Joseph is now in a position of absolute power in Egypt. And Judah and his brothers stand in his presence, and they are in need. And conflict arises, and Joseph says that Benjamin, the youngest brother, will now have to stay in Egypt. And Judah steps up. 
See, Judah begs Joseph to let him stay in servitude in place of Benjamin. And Judah says, take me instead. Judah is given the second chance to intervene on behalf of his younger brother. And this time, Judah gets it right. See, we've come a long way in Judah's life from, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, to please let your servant remain instead of the boy. It's clear that God's mercy and grace affected Judah. The kindness of God wooed him. See, it changed him. See, when Judah says, she is more righteous than I, he is at last honest with himself about his sin. God was leading him in kindness to repentance. Now, whether Judah repented in that moment or later in his life or perhaps never, there is one thing that is clear. God's redemption was available even to Judah. Friends, the redemption of God is so beautiful and it is so available. It's available to the oppressed and it's available to the oppressor. It's available to you if you feel unseen and forgotten, and it's available to you if you make mistake after mistake and you find yourself unable to get out of the rabbit hole of sin. It's available to the one who feels really weighted by the constructs of our society, and it's available to you if you're hurting other people. It's available to the one who has never trusted their life to Jesus, and it's available to you if you've been walking with him your whole life. See, redemption is available through no one else. It's only through faith in Jesus. It's a simple process that you can't earn. You can't do anything. It's by grace through faith. But it has profound meaning and transformation. See, to believe that when Jesus was on that cross, he took every mistake that you and I ever bore, and he bore it in love for us. That when you put your faith in him, he clothes you with his righteousness. You get to lay it all down, all the heavy burdens, all the missteps, all the guilt, all the pain, and you get to replace it with freedom and surrender. It is truly the most beautiful exchange. Now, as a community of R&R, I believe we need to be reminded of the redemptive nature of God. I think it's so particularly important to us in this season and in this time. See, our goal is to meet people, right? To meet people in our communities, especially in New Rochelle, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we want to bring the light of Jesus to our communities, we have to be experiencing a fire within us, within our own hearts. See, a fire has to begin with a spark. And redemption, the ways that Jesus saved us, and the way he continues to save us, that's what provides that spark. So maybe today, maybe today you need to ask him to redeem your life for the first time. Maybe you need to lay it all down and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I don't need a second chance. I need somebody else to be the substitute. Jesus desires to be that substitute for you. Or maybe today you need to be reminded of the sweetness of the cross, the redemption that you received. You need your eyes to be reopened to the wonder of the cross. And maybe today you need to ask God, you need to seek him for redemption in a very specific situation, a relationship or a conflict or a pain or a healing that you need. Or maybe today... You just need to earnestly pray for the redemption of others. 
Maybe you need to be reminded that that person, that friend, that family member, that coworker is not out of the reach of God's long arm of redemption. So Isaac is going to close us with a song. And my prayer for you is that you will invite the spirit of our living God to speak redemption into your life wherever you are. This is the seed of Abraham, and led them through the wilderness into the promised land. In boundless love and mercy, he gave his only son, who became the sacrifice for everyone. Oh, God's 